Chapter Seventeen of *The Green Rust* by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Kirsten Weber. *The Green Rust* by Edgar Wallace. Chapter Seventeen: The Chew of Krakow. If there were committed in London the crime of the century a crime so tremendous that the names of the chief actors in this grisly drama were on the lips of every man, woman, and talkative child in Europe, you might walk into a certain department of Scotland Yard with the assurance that you would not meet within the confining walls of that bureau any police officer who was interested in the slightest, or who indeed had even heard of the occurrence, save by accident. This department is known as the Parley-Vous, or PV, department, and concerns itself only in suspicious events beyond the territorial waters of Great Britain and Ireland. Its body is on the Thames Embankment, but its soul is at the central office, or at the Sûreté, or even at the Yamen of the police minister of Peking. It is sublimely ignorant of the masters of crime who dwell beneath the shadows of the yard, but it could tell you, without stopping to look up reference, not only the names of the known gunmen of New York, but the composition of almost every secret society in China. A Pole had a quarrel with a Jew in the streets of Krakow, and they quarreled over the only matter which is worthy of quarrel in that part of Poland. The sum in dispute was the comparatively paltry one of two hundred and sixty kronen, but when the Jew was taken in a dying condition to the hospital, he made a statement which was so curious that the chief of police in Krakow sent it on to Vienna, and Vienna sent it to Bern, and Bern scratched its chin thoughtfully, and sent it forward to Paris where it was distributed to Rio de Janeiro, New York, and London. The assistant chief of the P.V. department came out of his room and drifted aimlessly into the uncomfortable bureau of Mr. McNaughton. "'There's a curious yarn through from Krakow,' he said, "'which might interest your friend Beale.' "'What is it?' asked McNaughton, who invariably found the stories of the P.V. department fascinating but profitless. A man was murdered, said the P.V. man lightly, as though that were the least important feature of the story, but before he pegged out he made a will or an assignment of his property to his son, in the course of which he said that none of his stocks, he was a corn factor, were to be sold under one thousand cronen a bushel. That's about thirty pounds." "'Corn at thirty pounds a bushel?' said McNorton. "'Was he delirious?' "'Not at all,' said the other. "'He was a very well-known man in Krakow, one Zibowski, who during the late war was principal buying agent for the German government. The chief of police at Krakow apparently asked him if he wasn't suffering from illusions, and the man then made a statement that the German government had an option on all the grain in Galatia, Hungary, and the Ukraine at a lower price. Zabowski held out for better terms. It is believed that he was working with a member of the German government who made a fortune in the war out of army contracts. In fact, he as good as let this out just before he died, 
when he spoke in his delirium of a wonderful invention which was being worked on behalf of the German government, an invention called the Green Rust. McNorton whistled. "'Is that all?' he said. "'That's all,' said the P.V. man. "'I seem to remember that Beale had made one or two mysterious references to the rust. "'Where is he now?' "'He left town last night,' replied McNorton. "'Can you get in touch with him?' The other shook his head. "'I suppose you are sending on a copy of this communication to the Cabinet,' he said. "'It may be rather serious.' Whatever the scheme is, it is being worked in London, and Van Herden is the chief operator. He took down his hat and went out in search of Kitson, whom he found in the lobby of the hotel. James Kitson came toward him eagerly. "'Have you news of Beale?' "'He was at Kingston this morning,' said McNorton, with Parson Homo, but he had left. I was on the phone to the inspector at Kingston, who did not know very much, and could give me no very definite news as to whether Beale had made his discovery. He interviewed the tramp early this morning, but apparently extracted very little that was helpful. As a matter of fact, I came to you to ask if he had got in touch with you. Kitson shook his head. I want to see him about his green rust scare. "'Beale has gone single-handed into this matter,' said the superintendent, shaking his head, "'and he has played the lone game a little too long.' "'Is it very serious?' "'It may be an international matter,' replied McNorton gravely. "'All that we know at present is this. "'A big plot is on foot to tamper with the food supplies of the world, "'and the chief plotter is Van Herden.' Beale knows more about the matter than any of us, but he only gives us occasional glimpses of the real situation. I have been digging out Van Herden's record, without, however, finding anything very incriminating. Up to a point, he seems to have been a model citizen, though his associates were not always of the best. He has been seen in the company of at least three people with a bad history— Milsom, a doctor convicted of murder in the nineties, Bridgers, a chemist with two convictions for illicit trading in drugs, Gregory, who seems to be his factotum and general assistant, convicted in Manchester for saccharine smuggling, and a girl called Glaum, who is an alien, charged during the war for failing to register. But against Van Herden? Nothing. He has travelled a great deal in America and on the continent. He was in Spain a few years ago, and was suspected of being associated with the German embassy. His association with the Milbourne murder, you know. Yes, I know that, said James Kitson bitterly. Beale will have to tell us all he knows, McNorton went on, and probably we can tell him something he doesn't know. "'namely that Van Herden conducts a pretty expensive correspondence by cable "'with all parts of the world. "'Something has happened in Krakow, "'which gives a value to all Beale's suspicions.' "'Briefly he related the gist of the story "'which had reached him that morning. "'It is incredible,' said Kitson, when the chief had finished. "'It would be humanly impossible for the world to buy at that price.' and there is no reason for it. 
It happens that I am interested in a milling corporation, and I know that the world's crops are good. In fact, the harvest will be well above the average. I should say that the Krakow Jew was talking in delirium. But McNorton smiled indulgently. I hope you're right, he said. I hope the whole thing is a mare's nest, and for once in my life I trust that the police clues are as wrong as hell. But, anyway, Van Herden is cabling mighty freely, and I want Beale. But Beale was unreachable. A visit to his apartment produced no results. The foreign gentleman, who on the previous day had called on Van Herden, had been seen there that morning, but he too had vanished, and none of McNorton's watchers had been able to pick him up. McNorton shifted the direction of his search and dropped into the palatial establishment of Ponsonby's. He strolled past the grill-hidden desk which had once held Oliver Cresswell, and saw out of the tail of his eye a stranger in her place, and by her side the darkly taciturn Hilda Glaum. Mr. White, that pompous man, greeted him strangely. As the police chief came into the private office, Mr. White half rose, turned deadly pale, and became of a sudden bereft of speech. McNorton recognized the symptoms from long acquaintance with the characteristics of detected criminals, and wondered how deeply this pompous man was committed to whatever scheme was hatching. "'Ah, uh, ah, uh, Mr. McNorton,' stammered White, shaking like a leaf, "'Won't you sit down, please? To what, uh, to what?' he swallowed twice before he could get the words out. "'To what am I indebted?' "'Just called in to look you up,' said McNorton, genially. "'Have you been losing any more registered letters lately?' Mr. White subsided again into his chair. "'Yes, yes, no, I mean,' he said. "'No, ah, uh, thank you. It was kind of you to call, Inspector.' "'Superintendent,' corrected the other, good-humouredly. "'A thousand pardons, Superintendent,' said White hastily. "'No, sir, nothing so unfortunate.' He shot a look, half fearful, half resentful, at the police officer. "'And how is your friend, Dr. Van Herden?' Mr. White twisted uncomfortably in his chair, again his look of nervousness and apprehension. Mr. Uh, Van Herden is not a friend of mine, he said. A business acquaintance, he sighed heavily. Just a business acquaintance. The white he had known was not the white of today. The man looked older. His face was more heavily lined, and his eyes were dark with weariness. I suppose he's a pretty shrewd fellow, he remarked carelessly. "'You are interested in some of his concerns, aren't you?' "'Only one, only one,' replied White sharply. "'And I wish to heaven—' He stopped himself. "'And you wish you weren't, eh?' Again the older man wriggled in his chair. "'Dr. Manhattan is very clever,' he said. "'He has uh, great schemes, in one of which I am, ah, uh, financially interested. "'That is all. I have put money into his, ah, uh, syndicate, uh, "'without, of course, 
knowing the nature of the work which is being carried out, that I would impress upon you. You are a trusting investor, said the good-humoured McNorton. I am a child in matters of finance, admitted Mr. White, but added quickly, except, of course, in so far as the finance of Ponsonby's, which is one of the soundest business concerns in London, Mr. McNorton, we pay our dividends regularly, and our balance sheets are a model for the industrial world. So I have heard, said McNorton dryly. I am interested in syndicates, too. By the way, what is Dr. Van Herden's scheme? Mr. White shrugged his shoulders. I haven't the slightest idea, he confessed with a melancholy smile. I suppose it is very foolish of me, but I have such faith in the doctor's genius that when he came to me and said, My dear White, I want you to invest a few thousand in one of my concerns, I said, My dear doctor, here is my check. Don't bother me about the details, but send in my dividends regularly. Ha, ha! His laugh was hollow, and would not have deceived a child of ten. "'So you've invested forty thousand pounds,' began McNorton. Forty thousand gasped Mr. White. "'How did you know?' He went a trifle paler. "'These things get about,' said McNorton. "'As I was going to say, you invested forty thousand pounds, without troubling to discover what sort of work the syndicate was undertaking. I am not speaking now as a police officer, Mr. White, he went on, and White did not disguise his relief, but as an old acquaintance of yours. Say, friend, said the fervent Mr. White, I have always regarded you, Mr. McNorton, as a friend of mine. Let me see, how long have we known one another? I think the first time we met was when Ponsonby's was burgled in ninety-three. It's a long time, said McNorton, but don't let us get off the subject of your investment, which interests me as a friend. You gave Dr. Van Herden all this money without even troubling to discover whether his enterprise was a legal one. I am not suggesting it was illegal, he said, as White opened his mouth to protest. "'But it seems strange that you did not trouble to inquire.' "'Oh, of course, I inquired, naturally. I inquired, Mr. McNorton,' said White eagerly. "'It was for some chemical process, and I know nothing about chemistry. I don't mind admitting to you,' he lowered his voice, though there was no necessity, "'that I regret my investment very much.' We businessmen have many calls. We cannot allow our money to be tied up for too long a time, and it happens, ah, uh, that uh, just at this moment I should be very glad, very glad indeed, to liquidate that investment. Mr. McNorton nodded. He knew a great deal more about White's financial embarrassments than that gentleman gave him credit for. He knew, for example, that the immaculate managing director of Ponsonby's was in the hands of money-lenders, and that those money-lenders were squeezing him. He suspected that all was not well with Ponsonby's. There had been curious rumors in the city, amongst the bill-discounters, 
that Punsonby's paper left much to be desired. "'Do you know the nationality of Van Herden?' he asked. "'Dutch,' replied Mr. White promptly. "'Are you sure of this?' "'I would stake my life on it,' answered the heroic Mr. White. "'As I came through your office, I saw a young lady at the cashier's desk. "'Miss Glaum, I think her name is. Is she Dutch, too?' "'Miss Glaum, ah, uh, well, ah, uh, Miss Glaum,' White hesitated. "'A very nice, industrious girl, and a friend of Dr. Van Herden's. "'As a matter of fact, I engaged her at his recommendation. "'You see, I was under an obligation to the doctor. "'He had, ah, uh, attended me in my illness.' "'That this was untrue, McNorton knew.' White was one of those financial shuttlecocks which shrewd money-lenders toss from one to the other. White had been introduced by Van Herden to capital in a moment of hectic despair, and had responded, when his financial horizon was clearer, by pledging his credit for the furtherance of Van Herden's scheme. Of course you know that, as a shareholder in Van Herden's syndicate, "'You cannot escape responsibility for the purposes to which your money is put,' he said as he rose to go. "'I hope you get your money back.' "'Do you think there is any doubt?' demanded White in consternation. "'There is always a doubt about getting money back from syndicates,' said McNorton cryptically. "'Please don't go yet,' Mr. White passed round the end of his desk and intercepted the detective with unexpected agility, taking, so to speak, the door out of his hands and closing it. "'I am alarmed, Mr. McNorton,' he said, as he led the other back to his chair. "'I won't disguise it. I am seriously alarmed by what you have said. It is not the thought of losing the money. Oh, dear, no. Punsonby's would not be ruined by—ah, uh, a paltry forty thousand pounds.' "'It is, if I may be allowed to say so, the sinister suggestion in your speech, Inspector—superintendent, I mean. "'Is it possible?' He stood squarely in front of McNorton, his hands on his hips, his eyeglass dangling from his fastidious fingers, and his head pulled back as though he wished to avoid contact with the possibility— is it possible that in my ignorance i have been existing to finance a scheme which is ah uh, illegal immoral improper and contrary ah uh, to the best interests of the common weal he shook his head as though he were unable to believe his own words everything is possible in finance said mcnorton with a smile I am not saying that Dr. Van Herden's syndicate is an iniquitous one. I have not even seen a copy of his articles of association. Doubtless you could oblige me in that respect. I haven't got such a thing, denied Mr. White vigorously. The syndicate was not registered. It was, so to speak, a private concern. But the exploitation of green rust suggested the superintendent and the man's face lost the last vestige of colour it possessed the green rust he faltered i have heard the phrase i know nothing 
"'You know nothing but suspect the worst,' said McNorton. "'Now I am going to speak plainly to you. "'The reason you know nothing about this syndicate of Van Herden's "'is because you had a suspicion that it was being formed "'for an illegal purpose. "'Please don't interrupt me. "'You know nothing because you did not want to know. "'I doubt even whether you deceived yourself.' "'You saw a chance of making big money, Mr. White, "'and big money has always had an attraction for you. "'There isn't a fool's scheme that was ever hatched in a back-alley bar "'that you haven't dropped money over, "'and you saw a chance here more tangible than any that had been presented to you.' "'I swear to you,' began White, "'the time has not come for you to swear anything,' said McNorton sternly. "'There is only one place where a man need take his oath, "'and that is on the witness-stand. "'I will tell you this frankly, "'that we are as much in the dark as you pretend to be. "'There is only one man who knows or guesses the secret of the green rust, "'and that man is Beale. "'Beale! "'You have met the gentleman, I believe. "'I hope you don't have to meet him again.' The green rust may mean little. It may mean no more than that you will lose your money, and I should imagine that is the least which will happen to you. On the other hand, Mr. White, I do not disguise from you the fact that it may also mean your death at the hands of the law. White made a gurgling noise in his throat and held on to the desk for support. "'I have only the haziest information as to what it is all about, but somehow—' McNorton knit his brows in a frown, and was speaking half to himself. "'I seem to feel that it is a bad business, a damnably bad business.' He took up his hat from the table and walked to the door. "'I don't know whether to say au revoir or good-bye,' he said with twitching lips. "'Good-bye uh, is a very good old-fashioned word,' said Mr. White, in an heroic attempt to imitate the other's good humour. End of chapter 17 Recorded by Kirsten Weber